Oh, hello. You have a complaint, you say? Well, yes, we, we do care a great deal about the experience of our patrons. What can I do for you? Painting in the coat room is talking to you. Looking at you. Hmm. You'll forgive me for asking the obvious, but you're not one who converses with everything, are you? No? Well, then, uh, I'm sorry, I'm afraid you must be mistaken. No, yes, I understand, this place of all places, you wouldn't expect... That's it exactly. There are a great many paintings upstairs at Zero's, and a great many other objects too, that you might catch looking at you. But I can assure you, such things don't happen down here. Laws of the Grey and all. Do you still want your martini? <sighs> no? Well, I shouldn't let this go to waste. Don't mind if I do. Welcome. It's so good to see you all again. The pull of shadow has been crushing of late. Tonight, I'm thrilled to introduce you to a local artist, co-worker, and dear friend of mine, Molly Holland. This show is all about the strange crossovers between indigo and gray, magic and mundane, and tonight's conversation might be the most on point yet, as far as that subject is concerned. You'll also get to meet Matthew DeMolanta, a gamer, invisible sun player, and community organizer who serves on the board of our ongoing sponsor, Gamers Giving. Before I invite the guests in for a drink, though, I need to talk about technology for a moment. Whether you've known it or not, most episodes of this podcast have included not only show notes, but also images scattered throughout. More of an experiment than anything, and I never made too much fuss about it, because most podcatchers just ignore them. Well, something magical just happened. With the release of iOS 12 a few weeks ago, Apple's default podcasts app now displays images, even on the lock screen if your iPhone is closed. Good timing, too, because Molly Holland is a painter. So if you want to see some images from Molly's body of work, find yourself a capable podcatcher. Pocket Casts and Overcast are two other great options. Pour a delicious and fragrant beverage. Just let the synesthesia wash over you. I mean, read the show notes simultaneously if you can handle it. That's enough about etheric technology, which barely even functions down here. Let's talk about the surreal in painting, perception, and gaming. Vizsla's Call. Hello, Molly Holland. Hello. What are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking double Bergmont tea. Earl Grey. Why did you choose incredibly extra strong Earl Grey today? Well, it was the first option I saw, and it seemed fantastic. Bergamot. I don't know that you can have too much bergamot. No, never. No. So, and it's very nice and warm on this kind of cool fall day, late summer day. It sounds delicious. I, uh, I chose my tea for many of the same reasons. It's honey, vanilla, chamomile, but now I'm going to admit I'm jealous of your tea. That mm. sounds nice. So I'm excited to have you on. Most of the time I have known you as graphic designer and friend, but you mm -hmm. also have been a painter for... Mm, well, professionally, over a decade. Over a decade. And, and non-professionally, as a human, how long have you been painting? As long as I can remember. Yeah. I used to get up before dawn as a little girl and go out and paint in the living room. <laughs> and my mom would 
want me to go back to bed. So <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. That was. I'm glad you had your priorities <laughs> correct. Um, tell me a little bit about the types of things that you paint. You've painted in a lot of styles. If I had to like force you to tell me what style of painter you are right now, what would you say? Oh, that's unfair. I know. Yeah, that's tricky. Um, right now, I'm. I guess I could call myself a word artist in a way, because my paintings are um, centered on words and text and the meaning that comes from them, and. I don't know that there's a term for that. <laughs> we need to create one. But word artist will work for now. Okay. How long have you been word artisting? Only in the past six months. Oh, this is new. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Part of what I'm curious about, Invisible Sun is a game of surreality, and surreality is an art form of subconsciousness and deeper humanness. <laughs> At some points in your career, you have been called a surrealist artist. I'm curious to hear a little bit about whatever the connecting thread is, even as you've changed styles or moved through different aspects of your work, different modes of working and also modes of being inspired. What are some of the common threads throughout your whole life of painting that you see in your own work and processing? Mm-hmm. Well, storytelling is definitely a common thread. and. I looked up the definition of surreal, and it means extra. Sur means a larger amount. Mm -hmm. So I definitely started my career as a surreal artist, Mm -hmm. and I took life situations and kind of exaggerated them in an imaginary way to bring about a new and kind of extra reality. I think that surreal art is taking the physical reality mm-hmm. and um, altering it in a way that we don't see every day, but we comprehend it as we do the rest of the physical world. So it's um, it's kind of like a possibility. I think if we can imagine it and we can paint it, it's possible. The things we imagine in our mind are a reality in our mind and it's fun to get that out into the material physical world on a painting and so that thread carries through all of my work into the word artist phase I feel like abstract art is also surreal art but it's more the inner world Mm -hmm. so it's Sir, reality, mm-hmm. inner world, mm-hmm. and um, so whenever we're taking reality as it is and then making a sir reality, we're picking some dimension of it, probably not all the dimensions of it, but some dimension of it, and exaggerating that one and making it more than, or maybe a few and more than whatever it is you're exploring at the time. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that might be exaggerating. A physical aspect. I know, you know, classic surrealist painting we think of is often very, you know, Dali was very like realistic in the way that he painted things, but he was stretching and making the things in the paintings mm-hmm. more than. And then other types of surrealism extend other things. So, what is it that you're making more than in the abstraction of your word art currently? Mm-hmm. 
Well, for a moment, talking about Dolly, that made me think of something. He, he kind of stretched time or shrunk time or exaggerated objects. And I think that's more true to how we experience life in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we feel more alive mm-hmm. <laughs> or time feels more important or um, it doesn't necessarily unfold systematically. There's a sense in which sometimes surreal artwork we brush against from our perspective in pure reality, I guess you could say it's distorted or exaggerated, but there are ways in which surreal art or abstract art, any kind of art that is reaching deeper, can actually more correctly and accurately grab a hold of how we feel Mm -hmm. rather than just our senses. When you talked about time, one of my favorite artists that has been called surreal is de Kirko, and he has a couple of paintings that have just haunted me that are like an Italian plaza with long, hard shadows and the light in the afternoon, you know, long and low in the sky, and like a train passing by in the background. But the way that it's painted feels like a moment of stopped time. There's clearly motion. There is a train. There is smoke coming from the smokestack. There are a few solitary people walking, but it's just apparent that life is not happening. And to me, it immediately puts me in a state of introverted melancholy reverie, like the way I feel when I'm walking through a busy city even, but I'm in a little bubble and everything has slowed and I'm just observing and things are drifting by. There is no scientific photograph that could capture how I feel, but Mm -hmm. these paintings do that. It's interesting. Yeah. So it's touching upon and bringing to life this inner world experience that there's really no other way to reach that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So more true to reality. So your question was, what am I um, touching on right now that I'm kind of stretching or bringing to light? Mm -hmm. What is more than in your word art? My main criteria that I'm placing on myself right now is that I'm creating art that when I wake up in the morning I'm excited to see and I want to see every morning when I wake up. (laughs) (laughs) That's such good criteria. So I think that the abstract element that I'm bringing to it is kind of reflective of my mind when I wake up in the morning. When I wake up um, the world is full of possibilities at that point and your mind is fresh and you're kind of in this deep like sleep wake state and so you're just kind of slowly coming out of a dream state and I'm creating paintings that encourage that state whereas nice. the more realistic physical paintings encourage a very specific detailed image and a specific mm-hmm. emotion mm-hmm. like the one you described of mm-hmm. the train whereas the abstractness and the freeness of color allow for a lot more open exploration and meaning to be drawn from mm-hmm. it tell me a bit about your own responses to the same one of your paintings on different mornings when you wake up and look at it One day I might wake up and the colors have a big impact on me. Maybe they're kind of like a stormy sky color with rainbows. And it might make me feel grateful for the nature that I'm experiencing that day. And then another day I'll wake up and see something totally different. Like I'll read one of the words. And maybe just one of the words will jump out on me depending on how I'm feeling that day. Like, um, for example, one, one recent painting said 
make that beautiful thing on it. <laughs> so that might inspire me that day to be creative. How much do you, as Molly, the viewer of your painting, feel like the same person as Molly, the creator of the painting? Do you look at it and go, that's a thing I made? Or do you look at it and go, oh, this is art impressing itself upon me today? Or both? I have never thought about that before. I think most days I wake up and I just see it as a work of art and it could have been made by anyone. And then once in a while I come home through the door after going grocery shopping and I think, oh, that's right, I made that painting. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any idea what comes next afterwards? Or is it still too soon? I'm really having fun with this, the word project, so... I don't see any end in sight so far. (laughs) I think that's a good place to be. I'd like to hear a bit more about your process. At some point, some words get chosen and put on the canvas, and other words are not chosen and do not end up on the canvas. But tell me a bit about what happens in between the time you sit down to paint and the time that a word appears on the canvas. So I get my paints set up and my canvas, and I allow myself to go into a subconscious state. And... I just try to not control anything. Mm -hmm. I will literally get paint on my brush and put it up on the canvas and kind of allow my arm to move. And more often than not, Mm -hmm. I'm surprised by what comes out. Mm -hmm. And it may even be something I don't want to see. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Like if I'm struggling with something in particular. I saw an F word on one of your canvases that you showed me. I don't know whether that that was was intentional or not. You don't have to comment, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so very subconscious. Was that more or less always kind of true? Like when you were sneaking out before dawn to paint, were you sort of doing the same, like letting whatever flows through me? Or is that something you've developed over time as an artist? Hmm. I think as children, we are naturally in that state. Mm-hmm. However, I think as artists, we go through times where maybe it comes more easily or mm-hmm. other times it's more difficult. If I have an art show and 100 people come by then the next time I go to paint sometimes I'm thinking about what everyone's <laughs> going to think and sure. so um, it's it's something I have to strive mm-hmm. for one interesting thing about art and being a painter is that the energy you bring while you're creating something is very on the surface of your canvas Mm. and it continues to put out energy day after day after day and Mm. all the viewer has to do is come and engage in a conversation with that painting or listen to it and the painting meets them where they're at so each person will see something else and it's it's kind of a neat energy transfer that doesn't really require electricity to be plugged in (laughs) That's pretty neat. I suppose, in a sense, anything that a person makes and then exists in the world continues to have a life past the time it's made. People see it, they use it, they bump into it, they brush against it. But there's something especially interesting, perhaps, about a painting, because if I have a painting in my house, it is most likely because I put it there. And on some level, I wanted to expose myself to the day-in and day-out and changing energies of it as it sits there like a battery, right? Like you put something into it, leave something of yourself there. 
and then later that just constantly seeps out. And that's just a really interesting thought. There's a thing in Invisible Sun that are called kindled items. They are not alive, but they are imbued with just a little bit of the spark of their creator. And they, in some sense, they have a similar kind of uh, response to the other things that are in the room around them, or that there's a little of, of the person who, who kindled them left behind even when that person isn't there. So because I was thinking Invisible Sun thoughts coming into the interview, that pops to mind as you say that. Yeah. It's interesting. I like that, the spark of the creator. That's a very nice way to describe it. It's super interesting for me to hear you <laughs> talking about the fact that the energy that you leave behind on the canvas one day, you might wake up the next day and receive the energy back as something else. It's like... Yeah, it's changing form. Yeah. Kind of takes mm-hmm. on a little life of its own once it has left your mind and mm-hmm. been deposited somewhere and looks a bit different under the light of a different sun. It's kind of interesting. And then it comes back to me and I create a new painting. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's so interesting to be having, in that sense, a delayed conversation with yourself just as much as this, of course, may end up being a conversation with another person who puts it on their wall. You could say the same thing about a book, but if I'm going to read a book, I've got to decide to sit down and make time and pick up a book and immerse myself into it and, like, read it. And I like the idea that the painting is there where I have invited it Mm -hmm. into my life and is bouncing back at me in the middle of whatever else I'm doing, Mm -hmm. whether I'm actively thinking about it or not. The Secret Seller has a new sponsor. I'd like to tell you about Tabletop Bellhop. Tabletop Bellhop answers your game and game night questions, striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Mo T is your cardboard concierge, your RPG mater D. Let him put his years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. Read the blog, watch the live stream, and listen to the podcast. The blog can be found at tabletopbellhop.com. There, you will find gaming advice, reviews, weekly features, and more. Join Mo and his co-host Sean as they answer tabletop game questions live every Wednesday at 8.30pm Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. Watch the show and take part in the lobby live chat. An edited version of the live show goes out to the world on Tuesday mornings at 2am Eastern in the form of the Tabletop Bellhop Live podcast. You can find it on pretty much every podcasting platform. Tabletop Bellhop is all about answering your questions. Have a question of your own? Send it to questions at tabletopbellhop.com. Thank you again, Tabletop Bellhop and Mo T for sponsoring the show. It's funny talking about role-play games also. I feel inspired Um, when we have our Numenera sessions. I feel it it takes a certain amount of creative energy to add to the story and to respond to what's going on. And so similar to creating a painting because you're um, using your imagination, you're putting the colors out there, and then you're kind of getting feedback from the part of the painting you've done so far and you're just kind of carrying the story on 
on the canvas and Mm -hmm. that same joy that I get from creating a painting I get from the Numenera sessions we have as well and it kind of sticks with me throughout the day or the week because it's like I created something in this other world in this other dimension or level of life so that's really neat to hear you're because you're fairly new you hadn't played any tabletop role-playing games before this um what molly's talking about is that we have a eh, roughly weekly numenera campaign at lunchtime and that's been going in some form in this office for two and a half years but you joined how long ago was it about a year and a half ago yeah I, I agree. I see what you're saying in the sense that part of what's so exciting about a shared story like this is that <laughs> you speak something out there into the story, and then it's true. Like, once you have spoken it, it has happened, and both you and all the other people in the story are reacting to that, to the things that you've observed, the things that your character has done. But as a GM, it's interesting because there was a certain point where you had been mostly kind of observing and kind of understanding what was going on and sort of catching up. And then there was one week where we played and you were just in character. (laughs) And suddenly her motivations were your motivations and you understood what your role was in the story and where you were going. And you weren't waiting for me to kind of feed you ideas about what the next thing to do was. And that was really thrilling to watch. Do you have any sense for what it was that led you to that point? I told myself not to take anything personally. And as soon as I did that, and I took Molly out of the picture and just existed in this kind of subconscious stepping into Moran's uh, shoes, Mm -hmm. then everything just fell in place. I just had to take my mind out of it. Interesting. That's actually really good feedback for me as a GM, because one of my favorite things is inviting new people in to play the game. But that might be good uh, advice for me to recommend to people earlier on, if it helps free them from worrying that they're doing... Was it it a fear that you were doing something wrong? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was (laughs) That's very understandable. Just looking stupid, probably. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, we all all sort through that. I think that's, that's a very freeing thing when you are with people that you learn to trust over time uh, that's part of what's so freeing is that ability to explore and to kind of play in this space where you're not sort of limited by the things that you molly sitting in a room with your co-workers would normally be limited by um yeah i really enjoy that that's neat to hear yeah it takes us a little bit of vulnerability and mm-hmm. just letting go and like art <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned something when we were talking previously about um how there's a sense in which stepping into the shoes of that other character is in fact a surreal act. <laughs> I think it's surreal because in that world, in the Numenera world, anything really is possible mm-hmm. and you can stretch the boundaries of mm-hmm. time and space and yeah. physical reality, much like a surreal painting. Monticoat Games has three, well, they have several different games, um, but there are three of them that are Numenera, which you've played. There's one called The Strange, and then there's Invisible Sun. They're all what you might call surreal in different ways, but they have very different philosophies about the type of strange that each one are. Monty Cook calls Numenera weird, and what he means by the weird of Numenera is it's assumed that everything in Numenera is based on science. You just don't know that science yet. Like, you see something super strange, there's like a thing floating 
totally doesn't matter to this story why it's floating, like what science this is that makes it float, but you assume that there is some technology underneath it that is in fact making it float. And the wonder comes from a lost mystery that some other civilization discovered, but you just get to be in a world where, much like our own, there are things that can be explained and things that can't. But they're sometimes beautiful, even if you can't explain them. But you know they make sense for some reason. And then I have not played The Strange as much, but I know he has a similar kind of parallel description of what strangeness is as opposed to weirdness. But then The Surreal, we've already spoken about at length, but I think in Invisible Sun, even more than in Numenera, you let go entirely of the idea that anything even has to have an explanation. Invisible Sun is not weird because of science that you don't understand. It's weird because that's how it is and there, there needs to be no explanation but what is a root in invisible sun is that the characters are very deep and the stories are very rich and very human and so the interactions between people are very rooted and grounded and realistic and everything else goes off the rails the sur in the surreality of it is everything else and the reality of it is the humans at the core of the story whereas in numenera the core reality is the fact that there's still science that grounds the world and the characters are not so deeply explored or not so realistic. So just interesting different axes of strangeness to kind of pull on and get different stories out of. It's, it's as if he chose, Monte Cook chose what the fixed variable would be. And as humans, we appreciate meaning. We're not too obsessed with understanding, I would suppose, because there's mm, so much we don't understand. Mm-hmm. But meaning is very important. To sure. That's brilliant. Uh, one thing I was thinking of as you were asking about when I'm in my creative process versus my everyday mm-hmm. life, this doesn't really answer the question directly, but as I was looking through my photos to find my latest images to send to you, I noticed that in the periods where I'm painting are also a lot of photos of light refracting through glass and light coming through the trees and just all these, you know, maybe graffiti that catches my eye. It's like if I spend a couple days Mm. a week painting, it infuses into the rest of my, like my vision becomes very artistic. And then the times when I'm maybe life duties and responsibilities take over, you can see that also when you're looking through my photo stream. So I just There's an interesting chicken and egg sort of question there, right? Like on some level, because you've been painting and you are inspired, you have your mind in that space and you're seeing the way light is falling across a wall and capturing the beauty of it instead of just like thinking about your to-do list. But then there's also an aspect where like, could it work the other way? Like if you really got in the habit of like stopping to take a picture of the wall pushing aside the to-do lists, would that also feed back to like make you more prone to paint? I remember when I was like young high school and taking very early photography classes in photo club or something, there was a period of time where we were learning about just how cameras work and how our eyes work, where you're learning how to sort of meter light and pay attention to, you know, aperture and temperature and all these things. And I remember having a truly surreal moment where at some point I looked around me and with this new kind of knowledge and practice in my head, I was not seeing the world, like objects around me. I was aware that what I was seeing was light 
bouncing off of those objects and back at me at different angles and with different colors of light being absorbed and like different numbers of photons striking my eyes from different angles and i had this very matrixy moment of just like (laughs) everything around me is suddenly seen through this entirely new eye and i'm like a very amateur itty bitty photographer but i listened to my friend jeff newton talk who has been kind of like you with painting he's been taking pictures since as long as I can remember and is now a fashion photographer in Los Angeles and does beautiful work. But when I watch him pick up a camera, which is always because he just always has a camera in his hand, it's just an extension of him. And he sees something and he just like switches into this mode and there's zero thought put into like what he's doing, but I can see that he's seeing layers and layers and layers of light striking objects in the world and knows exactly what to do with them and it's pretty magical so that's what it reminded me of when you talked about the photos in your photo stream and the connection you see between opening up that part of your mind when you are choosing to leave yourself behind and be there in front of the canvas but how that bleeds over into the rest of life where you are being molly in place that's really really interesting that's neat. That's a neat way to tie it all together. And I like how you said it's an extension. It's kind of like creativity becomes an extension of your mind and your comprehension. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's exciting to get to know a bit about your process and about the way that you think and feel your way through your art and through through the reality and surreality around and within and without. Such a pleasure having you here today. Thank you. Very much my pleasure. Thank you, Jason. (laughs) Of course. Do you want to tell everyone a bit about where they can find you if they want to see some of your work or know a little bit more about what you're doing? Yeah. I have a website. It's my name, mollyholland.com. And if you live in Flagstaff, I'm the permanent artist at Root Public House, where I periodically switch my paintings out. And yeah. Root Public House also has excellent cocktails. So if you are passing through Flagstaff, I recommend nothing more than getting a cocktail at Root Public House and taking in Molly's artwork. And sitting on the roof and watching the sunset. Also sitting on the roof and watching the sunset. There was one time I was up there sitting on the roof and watching the sunset and the um, heater thing with the gas tank next to it caught on fire and uh, it was very stressful. But that doesn't usually happen there, most of the time. It's a lovely place to watch the sunset. Yeah, usually. (laughs) Thanks so much, Molly. Thank you. For a few episodes now, you've heard ad placements for a premier sponsor of this show, Gamers Giving. Gamers Giving is a charity built by gamers for gamers. They distinguish themselves by not only bringing gamers together to do good for the world, several other lovely groups do the same, but by focusing that energy and goodwill back into the gaming community itself. When a gamer experiences personal tragedy, the loss of a house, for example, or the onset of a serious disease, Gamers Giving rallies other gamers to make donations and channel those funds to the person affected, easing their burden and reminding them they are not alone. I could not be more proud to have Gamers Giving as a sponsor of this show. I truly believe in the power of this community to do good, not ill, and Gamers Giving exemplifies that. So, beyond just giving you an ad read, tonight I'd like to introduce you to Matthew DeMolanta, board member at large of Gamers Giving, Invisible Sun fan, 
and an active member of the Google Plus Invisible Sun forums. Let's raise a glass for the regulars. So, Matthew Dimalanta, I am very happy to have you here with me today on The Secret Cellar. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. This is a section of the show where we talk with regulars in the community, get to know them a little bit, and understand a bit more about their connection to not only Invisible Sun, but the gaming community at large. So those are some of the things that we'll chat about today. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are separate from gaming and everything else, first of all? Absolutely. My name is Matthew Dimalanta. I am with Gamers Giving. It is a charity in Denver, Colorado that uh, we raise money for gamers in our local area who have had catastrophic circumstances, such as people who have cancer or their house burned down or something catastrophic that has completely ruined their life. And we see what we can do to help them out. So listeners will recognize Gamers Giving as an ad sponsor for the last few episodes, and you'll hear more ad sponsorships from them in the future. So thank you for that. And I'm really happy to have a chance to get to know you a bit more and also talk a bit more about Gamers Giving. First, if you don't mind telling me what kind of nerd you are, what uh, what type of gaming or other nerdy pastimes are you interested in? Let me put it this way. I am a gamer through and through. So I mean, <laughs> yes. if you can think of any type of game... I'm all about it. I uh, am a board gamer, an RPGer, a LARPer, card games, video games, uh, anything that you can make a game, I'm interested in it. That is rad. I, I'm that whole list except for the LARPing. I still haven't, uh, still haven't crossed that threshold, but I suspect that day is coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different experience. So tell me a bit. I, I got to know of you through the Google Plus Invisible Sun group. Tell me a bit about how you first heard mm -hmm. about Invisible Sun and what attracted you to that game specifically. Absolutely. So I've been following Monte Cook games ever since their Kickstarter for The Strange. Cool. And I have been playing their games. I've been playing The Strange. I've been playing Numenera, Predation. And I've just become a, a real big fan of their games. In fact, my son and I, actually both of my sons, play No Thank You Evil on a fairly regular basis. So uh, I've been following them for quite some time. And whenever they first announced what they were doing with Invisible Sun, I read a whole lot more about it. And when the Kickstarter came around, I read everything up and I'm just like, you know what, this is going to be something different. And I've just went all in, and so far I haven't been disappointed. <laughs> that sounds familiar. That would describe me too. I, I'm curious. I really, I have a soft spot in my heart for No Thank You Evil. Can you tell me just a bit about what the experience has been like introducing your boys to gaming at that level with that product? So my first time playing No Thank You Evil with my son, I kind of screwed things up. I got everything set up like it was just another role-playing game day with all of my friends and we went to run the game with my son and two of his friends. Next thing you know, kids are running all over the place and they're not paying attention. And it was kind of a little bit of a disaster. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I just, I, I learned that whenever you approach role-playing games with children, you can't approach them the same way as you approach them with an adult. So the next time I played with him, it was just me and him. Nice. And then we added one of his friends uh -huh. then we added his little brother and by doing like the the single editions of kids i was able to learn more about how i can structure things to keep their attention and to make it not just enjoyable for them but enjoyable for me as well 
Oh, that's really neat. How have you found that the mixing players of multiple different ages at your table, uh, how well is that? has that worked for you? So it works really well. Uh, the only thing that I've found that uh, sometimes can get dicey is whenever you're adding a child that is really, really young. Sure. Because they're, they're interested in playing. However, sometimes they just don't have the attention span to stay with you. And what I find is whenever you're doing No Thank You Evil, you cater the game toward the youngest child. And as you're going through the game, you throw stuff in for the for the older kids as well, but you want to cater things towards the youngest child. And that makes sure that everybody can have a good time. And it's sometimes if, it, if they're too young, it doesn't work. That is good advice. I'm taking notes because our daughter is currently too young to be playing games, but by the time she gets there, I want to be an expert. No, thank you, Evil GM. <laughs> oh, how old? She's two and a half right now, but she's just at the point, which is so much fun, where she's starting to tell stories of her own. So it's just been in the last mm -hmm. three weeks that she's kind of, the part of her mind has come online where she'll tell us really excitedly with hand gestures about things that she saw or things she remembers from earlier today or yesterday. And so her her sense of time is still, you know, she'll kind of confuse past, present, and future, but she'll accurately tell us about events and then start adding details on top that are she obviously switches into imagination mode and like starts adding details. <laughs> and it's so much fun <laughs> to watch that because I I think a lot about stories and games and watching those parts of her brain literally form in front of us is just amazing. So really cool. Yeah, that, that's awesome. My first introduction to something like that with my son, he was uh, two. And what we did was he had different books that he really liked me to read to him. And he would, would always go on and on and on about things that he thought would happen. So what we did is we kind of shifted things. Cool. Kind of like a find your fate book type of uh -huh. thing. Yep. So we'd start out with how the book did. And uh, then I'd tell him to make choices and we would close the book and I would continue the story. Oh, I love that. And that's what we're all learning to do as GMs, right? Figure out what our players want and then uh, <laughs> make those things come back around in the story. That's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to ask about Invisible Sun. Have you, have you actually gotten to start playing it with a group? or? So uh, we have only played one session so far. Okay. Uh, we've had session zero, and we've had the the first session, and everything outside of that, we're, we just haven't gotten there yet. Also, I am putting together other games that we're linking the games together. Yes. Okay, cool. Can you tell me about one character that came out of character creation that is particularly interesting? So uh, one character that I'm really interested in seeing how it goes is it actually is not from the, our main group, but is from uh, the side characters that are going to be drop-in characters. So I recently became disabled, and in becoming disabled, I found out that there is a very, very large disabled gaming community. Oh, cool. And those people, um, I've had them make Invisible Sun characters and they are going to be running little solo events, but they're going to be doing drop-ins on other people's groups. I love it. And one thing that was really interesting is one of the characters, she went ahead and built a weaver. However, it's very heavily influenced by the things that she can't do anymore. Oh, that's so interesting. So she gets to kind of live things out through her character, and it's... It's a very interesting experience. Very cool. I know one of the things that surrealism as a genre 
talks a lot about is sort of the relationship between, you know, the parts of us and the world around us that are physical and that are our bodies and that all the, and the parts of us that are everything else other than our bodies. <laughs> There's a natural tension and exploration mm -hmm. of that. So I would be curious to know whether Invisible Sun, perhaps in a way that some other games don't, ends up being a really useful way to explore those kinds of questions for you and some of the friends that you've made. That's really, really cool. Yeah. We were talking a bit before, and you've had a lot to say about the kind of gaming community in and around the Denver area, which is where you're located. Do you want to tell me a bit about what's been happening there? Yeah. So uh, whenever I moved to Denver in 2004, there were lots of groups of gamers. In fact, I found an abnormal amount of small groups of gamers, but nobody talked to each other. People would see each other at cons. But outside of that, they just nobody really interacted. Mm. Uh, and I, I just thought that that was kind of odd. So I had gotten together with some other people who are extroverts like me and organizers like me and started getting them to ha have the group start crossing over and start going to each other's events and meeting together to do big events at cons. and. Pretty soon, we ended up having a very large community. One of the things that makes me really happy about gaming here in Denver is the fact that uh, I met somebody at a gaming shop three weeks ago. And he was just like, yeah, I just moved to Denver a couple weeks ago. I was looking for my local game shop, uh, trying to catch up with somebody and find out where the gaming is going on, how I can get involved. And I was just like, hey. <laughs> you you came and talked to the right person. Let's let's get you hooked up with some groups. He's an RPGer and a board gamer, and that was three weeks ago. And now he has a couple hundred uh, board gaming friends. Oh my gosh! Not a couple board gaming, a couple hundred board gaming friends. So like that that's really awesome. That's great. I'm I'm slightly jealous of that. I live we live in in Flagstaff, which is a college town in northern Arizona, and. It's a lovely town, um, and there are, mm -hmm. are great and lovely and creative people here. But there are two gaming stores, and they're basically both magically gathering all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there's a pretty good board gaming community. Um, my main thing is tabletop, and there is not too much there. Although there is one gentleman in town um, who has been doing a really cool thing where he's putting on board game nights, but he also has a whole separate sidearm of his little com company where he's uh, kind of game mastering for groups and like just getting people who maybe have never even played a tabletop together to, before to like play uh, as a, you know, a, for a birthday party or something like that. And he's kind of winning lots of new fans to the craft through that, which I think is lovely, but it's, it, there's no place to just like drop in and join a pickup game happening or something anywhere in town. Uh, but I, I love to hear that taking place in Denver. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really awesome that, uh, really, at any given time, you can find something gaming going on in Denver. And on any weekend, we can send you to a place where you can hook up with 30 plus people and play the type of game that you're interested in. So, so good. And then did Gamers Giving grow out of that group or is it a separate thing? How did that come to be? So Gamers Giving was actually founded before my time. Okay. It was founded five years ago. Mm -hmm. And I ended up coming to the charity two and a half years ago. Okay. And they, they needed some help. They just had a board member go ahead and leave the board. 
And one of my friends who was on the board and part of our gaming community invited me to come help out. And I showed up and I, I said, hey, how can I help? How can I dig my hands in and get involved? And one of the first things that we did was we created a campaign so that we could help a uh, six-year-old girl. Well, she was six, at, six years old at the time. She's older now, who has leukemia. And we were able to raise a little over $17,000 for that family. How wonderful, not only to have the financial support, but just to know <laughs> that there's people out there that in mass are thinking of you and your situation and coming together on behalf of you. That's, that's so wonderful. Uh, well, it's not just our community. Um, it's also the publishers. I mean, uh, Monica Games is one of the publishers that donated to raise money for the event. So, oh. I mean, uh, it's it's not just the community that comes together, but whenever you let the publishers know what what's going on, they want to be involved as well. That's I am not an organizer, uh, that, or it comes very difficult to me. But to me, that seems like a superpower, and I love <laughs> watching people who are good at it connect people to other people to do lovely things makes me really happy. What is your role as board member of, of the organization? So I don't have a particular role. My job is kind of to do everything else that is not done by people that have a role. Gotcha. Sure. One of the things that I'm in charge of right now is we have a board game library that the charity has made that goes to most of the major cons in the area. It's a little over 500 games. Actually, I think it's coming closer to 600 games that is going to the different cons. And that's something that we want as a service to the community. So people can go to the cons. They see this huge library of, of board games and they can go ahead and find a game, sit down and play. It doesn't cost them a dime and uh, get to know other members of our community. In fact, I got a chance to talk with the people over at Catalyst Games a few weeks ago at Beacon, and one of their suggestions was to go ahead and get pre-gens and put them in the library. That way, if somebody wants to hop in a game of Shadowrun, or if they want to hop in a game of D&D or Pathfinder, or one of the Savage World games, that you have pre-gens for all of them. So if they want to play a game, they just send them over to the library. And here, we got a bunch of pre-gens uh, here. Choose one, and you can go over and play. Such a good idea. We also have sets of dice uh, so that they can do that. Very, very cool. There, there may be some listeners, I don't know, who are actually in the Denver area. What should they know about how to connect with you and the community there? So uh, really, all they need to do in order to connect with the community is hop on hop online on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash gamersgiving and introduce themselves, and we can hook them up with any type of group of gamers that they want to get connected with. Also, all the stores here know us. So, I mean, if you want to go to Wizard's Chest or Enchanted Grounds or Crit Castle or Cholescape Games or any of the dozen gaming stores here, they know who Gamers Giving are, and they're more than happy to get you connected, interconnected with the community. Very cool. My my second question was going to be for online people, but it sounds like that may be the same answer, which is facebook.com slash gamersgiving. Mm -hmm. And we actually, lately we've gotten a lot of donors that are out of state, which is weird for me because it's just like, hey, I, I'd like you to like 
be part of the community and see what, what you're donating money for. But they're they're not local. They just hear, hey, there's a gamer that that really needs help and they, they want to help. And I mean, the rest of the world thinks that we're weird. Why wouldn't we help each other? <laughs> Absolutely. And then finally, for people who are interested in following you specifically, uh, where's the best way to, to read anything that you're posting or keep track of what you're up to online? Uh, so me personally, the best way to keep track of me is via Facebook. You can contact me on Facebook. Uh, I think there are one or two other Matthew Demolanas in the Philippines, but it's pretty obvious which one is me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if, if you want to get a hold of me on Facebook or again, just go to Gamers Giving and everybody knows who I am. So Great. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really happy to get to know you as a as a voice and as a, a person beyond just in the forums <laughs> and uh, in Google+. It's really been nice to talk to you and I look forward to more of that in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. don't go yet. To close this evening out, I have a few exciting announcements. As you probably know if you've looked into Invisible Sun any time in the past several months and considered purchasing it, the first printing has long since sold out, for direct orders anyway. Because it's such a fabulous, bizarre, deluxe product, there was always some doubt about whether it even could be reprinted. Well, now there's a chance. Monty Cook Games has announced that they will soon be opening a Kickstarter, for the sole purpose of funding a second printing. So if you were hoping to buy it but were not able, or if you've only recently heard about the game, keep watch. Second, and related, I'm incredibly honored to announce that Monty Cook himself will be paying a visit to the Secret Cellar next episode to tell us more about the Kickstarter and to debrief a little about the creative process involved in producing and designing Invisible Sun. Need to get this place looking spick and span. Top shelf pours only next week. Finally, if you've been at all curious about The Truth Bleeds at Twilight, the Invisible Sun stream, I'm co-GMing with Ian Smith, the season is nearly over, and the finale will be November 16th at 7 Pacific, featuring a secret but very special guest. If you want to get caught up but only have time for one episode, I highly recommend episode 6. The investigative journalists of the notion piece together several mysteries, so it serves as a great summary of events so far. Thank you so much for spending your evening with me here in the Secret Cellar. Please do take a moment to rate or review this episode. It's a small thing, but I love receiving your comments, and it helps more people find us. If you're interested in advertising, write me at secretseller at zeros.bar. This is a great place to get your thing in front of smart, nerdy, delightful people. Audio design for the Secret Cellar is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and The Secret Cellar are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow. Shadow.